Mark chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. And if you're a guest of our ministry, uh, you can, uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, you can take that Bible home with you. We'd love to give that to you. But feel free to use it as well throughout the service uh, this morning. Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. Uh, last Sunday night, we started a new section of Mark's gospel. Mark 1 and 2 is about the authority of Jesus. But then as we get to Mark chapter 3, I suggested that what Mark is doing is he's zeroing in on different groups around Jesus. There are swelling numbers of people who are uh, gathering around Jesus in his Galilean ministry. As a matter of fact, a little bit earlier in this chapter, in the middle of the chapter, it gets so, uh, so dense that Jesus asks for a boat so that he might teach in shallow water to avoid the pressing mass of people. If you were here last Sunday night, I, I asked you to imagine an aerial picture that would be taken above of Jesus as this crowd is pressing on him. And I suggested that in Mark chapter 3, what is actually going on is that Mark is zeroing in on different subgroups in the large crowd, and he's emphasizing different things in the, 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 uh, about them. So in verses uh, 7 for 10, for instance, he described various large groups or crowds that had gathered from different geographical regions around Galilee, from the north and the south and the east. After that, in verses 11 and 12, he had some very specific things to say about some people who also gathered around Jesus. They were people with unclean spirits. And of course, Jesus has some very interesting things to say and do with these people with unclean spirits. After that is done, he turns his attention to the 12, the 12 apostles in verses 13 through 20, and he emphasizes uh, uh, some different things about them. He gives us a list of their names and describes uh, why and where uh, they are from. And so this morning, we're going to take it a step farther, and we're going to look and see another group that Jesus will draw our attention to, and those would be the scribes. And so actually, we'll look at the two final groups this morning. Uh, and uh, we'll go from there. Now, if you are a clock watcher, which I know no one here is, this service is designed to go just a little bit longer than normal, so don't panic. Okay, we would never do that. Uh, we want to make you really hungry. Okay, we want it to be about, about lunchtime or so when we're done. No, just kidding. Uh, so we're going to go just about 10 minutes normal or longer than normal. But, um, so let's look at uh, this first group, the scribes, verses 22 through 30. I'll read it out loud for us. Says in the scribes who came down for Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is himself coming to an end. But no man can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter 
But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Jesus' interaction here with the scribes begins in verse 22. The scribes arrive on the scene, coming down off of the elevation of Jerusalem. They go north uh, to Capernaum. And uh, as we look at the, the description of these scribes, I would suggest that the scribes coming from Jerusalem probably represent an official delegation, perhaps from the Sanhedrin itself. The Sanhedrin being a Uh, a body of uh, religious leaders uh, in the city of Jerusalem and for the Israelite people. And so once these scribes arrive from Jerusalem, they make the trip, they begin by making two strong accusations against Christ. And the ESV does a great job, the translation I'm reading, does a great job of emphasizing these accusations by putting quotation marks around them uh, in verse 22. So their first accusation is, he is possessed by Beelzebul. That is, he is possessed by a personality named Beelzebul. Now, unfortunately, we don't know much about this title. I've studied this title all week, just about. I've actually studied it beforehand as well, just to try to figure out who or what is Beelzebul. Now, some people connect Beelzebul to Beelzebub, ever heard that name in the Bible, in the Old or New Testament, it is used to describe a pagan god of the Canaanite people in the Old Testament. So some people connect it there, but I don't know that the connection is as obvious as it might feel in English. It appears safer to me as I study Beelzebul this week to connect it or to describe this as an alternative name for Satan. And so the scribes come And they make this accusation that Jesus is possessed by Satan. And it's the second accusation that they they offer that causes me to think that Jesus is talking about Satan. Because the scribes then in verse 22 also say this, quote, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And so the phrase prince of the demons or ruler of the demons is used in other Second Temple literature to describe Satan himself. And so the scribes arrive on the scene, they observe Jesus' miracles and healings that he's now doing in a house in Capernaum. They observe his exorcisms and they make a strong accusation. They say, Satan is empowering Jesus to do all of these good things. So Satan himself is indwelling this man. So in verses 23 through 27, Jesus responds to that. And he starts by asking a question in verse 23. How can Satan cast out himself or Satan? Or how would it be logical in any way for Satan to cast himself out of a person or to cast out some of his workers? How does that make any sense? And then Jesus proceeds with two parables. In verse 23, he actually uses the word parable to describe, what he's going to be to, to, to describe what he's going to be doing here. But the parables are fairly general at the beginning. He first uses a parable of a kingdom. He says, if a kingdom, verse 24, is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. 
So I think what Jesus is doing here in this passage, he's coming close to saying that Satan has a kingdom. If so, what Jesus is doing with demons is not joining in with Satan and helping him. Instead, he's plundering Satan's kingdom as he ministers for God's kingdom on planet Earth. He then uses the parable in verse 25 uh, through 27, the parable of a house or a household. Look at verse 25. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Here Jesus is saying that if divisions linger in a household, that household is soon to rip apart. And you don't have to be an ancient to understand that, right? You can understand that even in our current world today, if there is division that continues on in a household, that household will soon rip to pieces. But then in verses 26 and 27, Jesus directly applies the parable to the charge that the scribes have made against him. See, Jesus is speaking about kingdoms and households so that he might illustrate the preposterous nature of the scribes' charge against him. And so what he's saying here is that Satan would not attack his own workers or his, the whole thing would be sure to come crashing down. So in verses 27 and 28, he makes that clear. He, he introduces a new imagery for us. He introduces the imagery of a strong man in a house. In verse 27. And here Jesus says the only way that he would be able, Jesus would be able to perform exorcisms regularly would be if he bound Satan himself, the strongest man of his household. And only then, the text says, would Jesus be able to plunder Satan's house. Do you see that in your Bible? To plunder his house. As I studied that this week, is plundering Satan's house. I think that is... You know, only in that way, if Jesus bound Satan, would he be able to take Satan's goods. But what are Satan's goods in this passage? I I think that it's Jesus releasing demon-possessed men and women from Satan's domination. These men and women with unclean spirits are at the mercy of Satan. And Jesus goes about plundering Satan's goods, freeing them. Because He has bound the strong man, Satan himself. And then Jesus explains what is actually, uh, after he explains what is actually going on, he goes on the offensive in verses 28 through 30, on the offensive. He does not stop with these brief explanations about kingdoms and households and Satan's household and how he can be victorious over him. But Jesus issues a strong, if you're taking notes, there's a handout in the bulletin, Uh, He issues a strong counter charge in verses 28 through 30. And so let's look at verses 28 and 29. It says, truly I say to you, scribes, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Here Jesus is counter charging. They're making a charge. He's filled with Satan. Jesus' countercharge is that God allows for the forgiveness of all sins, any kind or type of sin other than one sin. And the one sin that he describes here is an eternal sin that he says has never forgiven. 
Have you ever come to this passage before and wondered, what in the world is the sin? And I mean, is there a sin that God cannot forgive? I've come to this passage several times in the years, and it's like, what? This is scary. In fact, at the dinner table last night, my kids asked me, what are you preaching on tonight or tomorrow? And I said, I'm preaching on one sin that never has forgiveness. And they all peer, you know, their ears perked up and said, what is that? And have I committed it? No, I just said, what is that sin? I once heard of a pastor who had a young man come, or a young woman come into his office who thought that she had committed the unpardonable sin. In a fit of anger against her mother, who was a Christian, she went into her bedroom, she locked the door, and she began rattling off uh, profanity against the Godhead. She not only profaned the name of the Father, she cursed the Son and the Spirit as well in anger. So by the time that she made it to the pastor's office, she feared that she had crossed a line of no return that she had committed a sin that was not pardonable. And so how would you counsel her? What would you tell her? Is there a sin that someone can commit from which they will never be forgiven? Well, I want to try to answer that question for us just briefly this morning in two ways. First, I want to go to some other texts of Scripture, and then I want to look at this text and try to answer that. First, as I go to other portions of Scripture... I'll catch up a little bit on my notes here. I want to look at what is not unpardonable in the Scripture. There's some sins that we might think of uh, as putting someone beyond forgiveness, but the Bible is clear of examples of people who actually committed such sins and were forgiven by God. Some people believe that murder is an unpardonable sin. They say, you know, like, how can God forgive a mass murderer? Thinking that that puts them outside of the forgiveness of God. But a brief survey of the scriptures reveals to us that people who are murderers can still be forgiven by God. I think of an uh, example of this in the Old Testament, David, King David, who killed Uriah or had him killed. Yet David was forgiven by God. David is in heaven with Christ today. In my opinion, this could also be true, my, my personal opinion, this could also be true of self-murder when someone takes their own life. But murder is not an unpardonable sin. Let's go to the Bible and see as well that adultery is not an unpardonable sin. It is wicked. It brings the punishment of God. But it's not unpardonable. And again, we don't have to go very far away from David. You see an example of a person who committed adultery, committed adultery with Bathsheba, yet was forgiven by God when he went to God and sought forgiveness from him. The impartable sin is not any one of a list of sins found in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 12, 9 through 11. I, I won't have you turn there. I'll just read it for you. I think sometimes we think some of these sins are like worse than others and that God can't forgive us of some of these things. Verse 9 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, and Paul goes through 10 sins here, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you, but you have been washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
And so while some of these sins seem to stick out to us as being especially grievous or heinous sins, even things like adultery, idolatry, homosexuality, drunkenness, reviling, and swindling are not beyond the grace of God as far as him being able to forgive people for those sins through the completed work of Jesus Christ. So this is what the scriptures teach, I think, about a sins that are not unpardonable. Uh, this is not blasphemy against Jesus. I found it interesting this week as I was studying the same word for blasphemy as used to the people who reviled Christ while he hung on the cross. They were railing at him, making accusation against him. Even one of the criminals on the cross blasphemes Jesus' name, yet Jesus, what does Jesus do? He prays that they would be forgiven. A prayer that would make no sense if it was impossible for God to forgive them for blaspheming the Son. And so now we look at this text itself, the text itself, to see what it says. So look in your Bibles again at Mark chapter 3, verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. And so as we look to this text itself, Jesus specifically describes this sin as blasphemy against the Spirit. And to understand what this means, I want to answer three questions here about blasphemy against the Spirit. First, what is it? What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, blasphemy as a word means, uh, refers to something that is hateful, insolent. It's hateful or insolent language directed against God. But in this text, it's a, it says against the Spirit. And so I would des- describe blasphemy against the Spirit in this way. Blasphemy is the sin of attributing the work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus and his actions to demonic forces. That's what the scribes are doing here. Okay, so in other places in the New Testament, we learn that when Jesus functioned and performed work on this planet in human form, he did so through the power of the Holy Spirit. He did everything through the power of the Spirit. And so the scribes arrive on the scene, unbelieving scribes, they cannot tolerate Jesus' work, and they attribute it to Satan's power instead of the Holy Spirit. That is, in context, what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. But that leads us to a second question uh, that I want to answer, and that is, how is this sin unforgivable? Because that's how it's described here. This hateful, insolent language against the Holy Spirit, the work of Christ, is, the text says, never forgivable. So we ask the question, how is that possible? And I I think that it's difficult to answer that question. But in my opinion, this sin is unforgivable because it is against the very one who brings unbelievers to the point of salvation and forgiveness. Okay, and I'm going to use some other scriptures to try to make this point. The Bible says that it's the Holy Spirit who convicts the world, the world, of sin, righteousness, and judgment in John 16. It's the Holy Spirit who will convict the world, all unbelievers, of their sin, 
righteousness and judgment. And I think he does so externally to lost people. He's not like inside of a lost person doing this. But external to lost people, to unbelievers, he is convicting them through the word, through their conscience, through creation, and many other things. This is the work of the Spirit. And and then the Bible also tells us, though, that without the Spirit's conviction, human beings are not able to understand or receive God's things. You get that? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. Left to ourselves, human beings cannot even begin to understand or receive the great things of God, his wisdom. We can't can't get it. And so, in my opinion, uh, blasphemy against the Spirit is an unbeliever's act of resistance against the Spirit that belittles the Spirit so deeply that he removes his convicting power or influence on the person so that the person is never able to repent and be forgiven for their sins. In other words, this sin can't be forgiven because the offender will never repent and believe. He will never repent and believe. And so then third, how do I counsel How do I counsel someone who comes to me and says they think that they've committed the unpardonable sin? I like the words of the old commentator, J.C. Ryle. He said it this way, and maybe you can't read that. I'll read it for you. J.C. Ryle, maybe 100 years ago or so, said there is such a thing as a sin that is never forgiven. But those who are troubled about it are the most unlikely to have committed it. On the other hand, those who actually do commit the sin are so dominated by evil that it's unlikely that they would ever be, become aware of it. That is, if people feel convicted about their sin, that is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit of God, and it is evidence that they have not committed the unpardonable sin. As this leads Mark in verse 30 to offer his own summative statement, look at verse 30. It says, For they were saying... He has an unclean spirit. Mark's explanation here helps us to understand, I think, more the nature of the scribe's original charge in verse 22. Remember what they were saying? They're saying, he has Beelzebub, by the prince of devils, he casts out devils. Here, from Mark's perspective, as the writer of this narrative, uh, he says the scribes were saying that Jesus has an unclean spirit. Basically, what the scribes are doing in Greek is they're replacing an adjective. Instead of Jesus having or performing this act through the Holy Spirit, scribes say unclean spirit. And so when Jesus stands up and offers this strong countercharge, you say by Beelzebul, I say, If you commit this sin against the Holy Spirit, you will never be forgiven. That's a way for Jesus to stand up against an attack on the Spirit of God. Now, that leads us to, uh, after Jesus deals with the scribes, he then uh, receives a visit from his family, and it's a short passage, verses 31 through 35. Let me just work through it with you. It says, verse 31, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. 
And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The account of Jesus and his family is short, as I said, but it's not, it's not so sweet. It's a very interesting exchange that he has here with his parents. It starts out with a simple request in verses 31 and 32. Here, Jesus' family have probably traveled over 30 miles by foot to see Jesus. They've come from Nazareth up to Capernaum. This trip has taken them two to three days, probably. And his family, his mother and brothers, want to see Jesus, but they can't get to him because of the crowds, so their request is passed along to him, and he responds then in verses 33 through 35. And Jesus responds first with a question. Who really is my family? Then he answers. Don't you love it when Jesus answers the question? Because that's like a hard question. Like, if you're asking that question, like, you know, your family's outside, they want to see you. Who is my family? Well, they're they're outside. You want to go see them. (laughs) They're right there. But then he answers it for it. Those that were near him were his brothers and sisters. And so before we dig too deeply into this passage or look at it a little closer, I I want to ask you, What do you think of Jesus' answer here to the request of his family? Or better yet, because we never critique Jesus, what would you think of me if I were an auditorium preaching to a large, pressing mass of people? Preaching all day, and someone gives word to me, your parents have come from Pennsylvania, they're outside, they don't have a ticket, if you have a ticket, They, they can't get in. And then I respond by saying, who is my family? These people here are my family. What would you think of me? Or what if, I, what if I treated Mary the mother of Jesus that way? You'd say, well, you are rude. Not Jesus. There must be some explanation about Jesus, but I'll tell you this. You are rude. Go out there and see your parents. And so that leaves us asking the question, why? Why was Jesus so abrupt with his family? And I want to close by reflecting upon two reasons why Jesus does this. So why does Jesus do this? The first reason is found in verses 21 and 22. And actually 20 and 21, we haven't done much with it. The first reason he does this is because his family is not there to encourage him. They're not there to see him. They're there to seize him. Look in your Bible. Going up, yes, up to verse 20, before this paragraph. It says, then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they, him and the disciples, could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, they, his family was saying, he is out of his mind. You know, one of the interesting things that stuck out to me about this text I'd, I'd never seen before is the parallelism of verses 21 and uh, 22. And I, I want you to see this 
um, in, in your Bible. So in verse 21, the text says, they were saying that he is out of his mind. Who's, who's the they? His family. Verse 22, you have the exact same expression in the original language. It's translated a little differently by the ESV, but in, in, in the Greek it says, they were saying he has Beelzebub. Two parallel statements. And what I think we, we have here in Mark's gospel is uh, what I'll just call, for, it's not, not like a great dog, I'll just call it a sandwich. Okay, where what Mark will start doing this throughout the rest of the book, he'll, he'll be telling one story, he'll introduce one story, he'll leave it frozen, he'll introduce another story, conclude that story, and then return to his first story. And so what you have in this text is you have two parallel accusations against Christ. They are separate, but they are related. His family is saying he is out of his mind. In modern vernacular, like Daniel Aiken says, this would mean they're, they're saying something like, he needs a straight jacket and a padded cell. Which is perhaps just one step away from saying he's possessed by demons. So to be very clear with you this morning, I think that his family is dangerously close to committing the same sin that the scribes are committing. Now, I don't think they do that because I think Mary and James and others become believers later. But so Jesus leaves them outside the house because they thought he was outside of his right mind. It's not just like they just want, you know, Jesus, would you just kind of make your way through the crowd so we can see you? They've come and they want to take him because they think he's crazy. But secondly, I think he does this. He treats them this way so that he might emphasize an important spiritual lesson. That's found in verse 35. We'll end with this. Final explanation. Look at verse 35. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And so this is not an anti-family rant by Jesus. Instead, Jesus redefines here what constitutes a family for believers. As one commentator said, and I've got the quote up here, one uh, said it this way, family is redefined along the lines of profession or confession of Christ rather than blood. And so Jesus' abruptness here with his physical family allows him to emphasize the familial tie that he felt with other genuine believers who were following him, perhaps the 12, or some other loyal followers that were right around him in the room. And so as we close, I want to ask you a few, two questions of application. First, I ask you whether you see your brothers and sisters in this church, as your true and genuine family. What Jesus says here is really radical. Like, if what I'm saying doesn't, like, take you a little bit off, then I don't think you really understand what Jesus is saying. 
I think that's especially true to those of us who live in, a, in an individualistic and a private society. I mean, our picture of a perfect night after work or after home is to be let alone. You know, leave me alone, quiet time, by myself or with my immediate family. But Jesus says that our strongest tie is with those who are doing God's will, not even our own family. And so as we think of the ramifications of what Jesus is saying about family, those who do the will of God, my father are my family, I thought of a few applications for us. You might, you might consider, you know, why would I, Pastor, why would I stick around for a church-wide picnic? I think Jesus would answer that because it's family time. Family time. And other brothers and sisters you covenanted together within the body who are doing the will of God. I want to spend time with them. I think uh, perhaps, you know, you might ask, why should I fight traffic to, to race to church prayer meetings on a Wednesday night? I mean, like if I, Pastor, I don't know if you know this, if I actually go the other way and head toward the beach, there's like no traffic. Okay, but like when I come this way, it's like traffic. So why don't I just go to the beach, spend time with God, pray, be, be by myself. See, we really value alone time and our culture. I think Jesus would answer the reason you should fight across traffic to come and be, be here is because it's family time. It's an opportunity to be with family, to pray with people who you've covenanted together with Christ. I, the more I've thought of it this week, I think many of us would actually probably not really like being one of Jesus' closest followers, the disciples. But this would mean for us that we would spend every day with Jesus and the others. You can imagine we would ask after a time, you know, when do I get a little alone time? Like, I need some me time here. By myself, to be refreshed. If we consider what Jesus is saying here, I think it will rearrange the way perhaps that we do holidays like Memorial Day. I mean, who should we have over? Who should we have over? How about those in the assembly who are doing the will of the Father that we have a familiar tie with? It would reorder our daily lives so that we see over and over again throughout the week, some of the same people. Those who are doing the will of the Father in our local assembly. So believers, this is real community, fellowshipping regularly with other believers throughout the week. Second application comes in this way. Perhaps you're a guest here of Colonial this morning. If you've begun to see in this text that the Christian community is an exclusive community, it's a tight-knit tie that we share as brothers and sisters of Colonial Baptist Church, and, and uh, please forgive us if we don't demonstrate that to you. If you're here as a guest, perhaps you feel like an outsider, not only to Christian fellowship here, but to Christ. I respond in this way by saying, you know, the, the Gospels are filled with story after story of people who saw Jesus, heard him, walked with him, talked with him, looked to be genuine followers of Jesus, but were not. 
So if you're here today as a guest, I ask you, are you actually doing God's will in your life? Are you actually following Jesus? To do so, you must repent of your sin. And you must believe that Jesus Christ came and died on a cross and rose again to pay for your sin and offer you salvation. So if you're here today as a guest, I would invite you to repent and believe now so that Jesus might call you my brother, my sister, or my mother. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this text. I thank you for the abruptness of it. Lord, I don't know that I have evenly, uh, even uh, well presented the abruptness of it. You issued a strong counter-accusation against the scribes, for they were blaspheming the, the Spirit of God. And then you deal abruptly with your, you dealt abruptly with your family, because even they were saying, he must be crazy. But Father, you do all this so that you might make this, that Christ did all this so that he might make this statement. For those who do the will of my Father are my brothers and sisters and mother. Lord, may we at Colonial Baptist Church understand more of that familial tie that Jesus has performed in binding us together. May we see that our true and genuine family partnership is with brothers and sisters in Christ in this assembly. And Lord, may any person who's here who does not know Jesus as their Savior, may they as well see that left in their sin without believing in Jesus and repenting of their sin They'd be sentenced to hell. They would not be your true family. And this morning, at this moment, at their seat, might they pray and ask you to forgive them of their sin. Might they believe in the name of Christ. Lord, this picnic, might we be able to rejoice in true family partnership that's established through the work of Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.